Hello, 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 everyone. I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to episode number 45 of Unformidable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded myths in our beloved franchise's quirky history, as to us, every player who dons the orange and blue is, in their own way, unformidable. Well, certainly an eventful off-season for the Metropolitans, uh, a lot of highlights with Uncle Stevie coming on and some key acquisitions, and a lot of lowlights primarily revolving around the Mets' general manager search and hiring and subsequent firing. But if we're looking at on-the-field only, the improvement up and down the roster is legitimately exciting. I mean, unless you really thought that Steve Cohen would buy every free agent on the market in his first offseason. It's hard to look at the offseason as anything other than something positive that should breed optimism. I mean, if you just threw Francisco Lindor's name in with the other major free agents on the market this year, he'd have to be target number one. And personally, again, just from a baseball perspective, I'd rather have Carlos Carrasco for three years and $36 million over... Trevor Bauer for three years and $102 million every day of the week. So, a hell of a move, I think. In fact, it was probably the most viscerally excited I remember being about a Met trade in about 20 years, close to exactly 20 years. Uh, aside from Mike Piazza and going way back, Gary Carter, uh, which probably were as are more exciting. The most excited I remember being about a Met transaction was a week before my birthday in 2001 when the Mets acquired another future Hall of Famer, Roberto Alomar. Now obviously I hope and I fully expect we'll be thinking about the Lindor trade more like the Piazza Carter trades than the Alomar trade, uh, but I did think it would be gave me a reason to look back at a talented ball player who came to the Mets in a relatively notable trade of his own and was with the team for a couple of notable months in late 2001 before getting quickly dispatched himself in the Roberto Alomar trade. That is Mr. Matt Lawton. Matthew Lawton Jr. was born on November 30th, 1971 in Gulfport, Mississippi. He was the third of four sons uh, in a family in which the love of baseball ran deep. Matt's father worked for a living as a logger, but he spent weekends playing semi-pro and indie league ball. The whole family watched and were students and aficionados of the game. And in fact, it was Matt's older brother, Marcus, who was the first, and coming out of high school probably seemed like the bigger baseball prospect, at least based on draft status. Um, if you did not know, Marcus was in fact drafted by our New York Mets in the sixth round of the 1983 draft and spent quite some time in the Mets organization. He fell short of making it to Shea in a Mets uniform, but thanks to Marcus, Matt Lawton wore a Mets uniform long before he was actually traded to the New York Mets and grew up a Mets fan with his brother in the organization as young Matt served as a bat boy in the Mets org for the couple of years that Marcus spent playing at Jackson, Tennessee, just a couple of hours from the family uh, home in Mississippi. Marcus was a very different player than Matt would be, more reliant on pure speed. In fact, in the Sally League in Columbia in single A, Matt stole 111 bases 
in 128 games, getting caught only eight times, uh, 111 for 119. That's pretty insane. But uh, he never really put up an OPS higher than the 700s. He was kind of uh, Billy Hamilton-esque in that you can't steal first base. Uh, so unfortunately, Marcus topped out a AAA Tidewater for the Mets. Uh, he actually, another quirky notable thing about Marcus is that he was the rare player involved in a Mets-Yankees trade going to the Bronx for Scott Nielsen on July 10th, 1989. Uh, he got his actual only Major League Baseball playing time going 3 for 14 in a Yankee uniform. Uh, but Marcus did hang around <clears throat> for three more seasons in the minors. He played in 1,064 minor league games, only making the majors in uh, 89 with the Yankees, uh, but he was still trying in 1992 uh, when he was in A at age 26, while his 20-year-old brother was beginning to make his baseball journey in the Twins organization. Because Matt had been drafted in the 91 draft by the Twins in the 13th round and quickly joined the Twins organization and took advantage of his brother's knowledge and experience. Uh, the Lawton family remembered uh, and you know, it's an incredible note about a reminder of how poorly most minor leaguers are compensated, uh, that Marcus actually had to spend his off-seasons working for UPS to uh, you know, compensate for that low minor league salary instead of working on baseball. So Marcus and Matt's parents <clears throat> determined that this time would be different and encouraged Matt to work in the weight room and work on baseball in the off-season so that other players wouldn't have an advantage on over him. Uh, so that really that really helped Matt uh, flourish eventually. Uh, Matt Lawton was a self-described quiet country boy, and he did struggle very early in the minors uh, by his own account, both personally and professionally, uh, even coming close to quitting uh, in 1992 after his first spring training. But he stuck with it and soon gained notice as a prospect for his all-around game, and for, in particular for the impressive batting eye that would become one of his MLB trademarks. In fact, I, I'd argue that in general, Lawton was probably underappreciated somewhat. Uh, I feel like he had that like Brandon Nimmo quality, uh, particularly in that era. I think on-base percentage was only beginning to gain its proper appreciation. And of course, power was rampant when Lawton was in his heyday, uh, any kind of pre-steroid, steroid era, uh, but he was a pretty solid all-around player. And, uh, you know, he, although I guess his defensive metrics are not what, don't really equal his defensive reputation at the time that he played, but uh, but he was overall a good major league all-around player. Uh, he made his debut in September of 1995 as a late-season call-up for a last-place Twins team. He was only 23, but he got a decent amount of exposure for September. 70 plate appearances in which he slashed 317, 414, 467. Obviously a small sample size, but uh, while Lawton was not quite a career 300 hitter, it actually does is pretty nice microcosm of peak Matt Lawton performance, as he was pretty consistently able to hold that on-base percentage about 100 points over higher than his batting average, thanks to his good eye, and also supplemented by the occasional hit-by-pitch, once again reminiscent of our Brandon Nimmo. 
Lawton recorded his first major league hit on September 6, 1995, a single the other way off of lefty specialist Mike Myers, and he hit his first major league homer before the end of the season against El Presidente himself, uh, the then 41-year-old Dennis Martinez, on September 28, 1995. Lawton would split 1996 pretty evenly between AAA Salt Lake and the majors with the Twins before firmly establishing himself as a major league regular, uh, which he did with a decent 1997, followed by an excellent 1998. In fact, 98 by metrics was Lawton's best major league season. He earned a 3.9 war, according to baseball reference. It was a year that saw him hit 21 home runs, drive in 77 runs, steal 16 bases, walk 86 times, strike out 64 times. Uh, slash line of 278, 387, 478 for an 864 OPS. Uh, again, just a you know very solid all-around player, uh, and did turn out to be Lawton's best major league season, but he had some similarly, similarly impressive years. Unfortunately, not with the Mets. And not the following year either, as Lawton struggled mightily in 1999, uh, but with pretty good reason. Uh, as mentioned, he did uh, tend to stand close to the plate, uh, Was took his base <clears throat> often enough, 94 times over the course of his career, uh, but on one fateful one on June 8th of 1999, Lawton was hit in the face with a pitch from uh, by Cincinnati left-hander Dennis, Dennis Reyes. Uh, the pitch fractured Lawton's right eye socket. Uh, to this day, according to uh, thing, interviews I read, uh, Lawton's right cheekbone still sits lower than the left due to the damage from this hit-by-pitch. Uh, it was you know pretty scary, obviously, when it happened, and... Doctors advised Lawton, and reports were that he would miss the rest of the season, but Matt was back out on the field six weeks later, uh, first wearing a protective face mask that uh, Lawton felt didn't help and impeded his vision, uh, so he got rid of that, but obviously the mental scars remained and affected him. Uh, while he still managed to draw walks and play passably, uh, Lawton felt himself reduced to a slap hitter. Uh, he had only two homers the rest of the way. Uh, his slugging percentage was over 400 at the time of the beating, fell to 355 by the end of the year, which was a career low for him for a full season. So he uh, reviewed tapes in the off se- in the off season, kind of saw that he was jerking away from the ball, and you know I guess helped him realize that he was afraid of the baseball, and he kind of had to rededicate and recondition himself to getting back to it, which he did exceptionally, as 2000 was one of two all-star seasons in Lawton's major league career, and in fact, in interviews, uh, he had cited that 2000 all-star appearance as one of his more memorable career memories. Uh, He never did get to play in the postseason, but he did uh, drive in a big run in the ninth inning of the 2000 all-star game with a single to right off of Trevor Hoffman. Uh, which extended the American League's lead to 4-2 and wound up being kind of the official go-ahead run in a 6-3 All-Star Game victory. Poor defensive season gave him less exciting war that year, but uh, his 2000 season 
just the the stat line was pretty impressive. 44 doubles, two triples, 13 homers, 88 RBIs, 23 for 30, stealing bases, 91 walks, 63 strikeouts, uh, 305, 405, 460 slash line. So someone, pretty much anyone would be happy to have on their team, I would think. Uh, but I you know, didn't foresee Matt Lawton becoming a Met. Uh, the New York Mets at the end of the 2000 season were, of course, coming off two straight playoff appearances and a World Series appearance in 2000. Um, and offense wouldn't seem to have been a need for a team two year removed from just a, an incredible 1999 lineup. Uh, but as the 2001 season played out, Robin Ventura began to decline. The, uh, the downgrade from John Olerud to Todd Zeal, always a bit noir in my life, uh, began to become more dramatic and apparent. And Edgardo Alfonso struggled with injuries and in what was a down season for him. So uh, that offense contributed to what was a very disappointing 2001 season for the Mets, uh, particularly in the first half of the year. Uh, and as the trade deadline approached in 2001, the Mets ranked near the bottom in the majors in virtually every major offensive category. And as of July 29th, the Mets found themselves 49-57, and 57, fourth place, 11 and a half games behind, of course, the Atlanta Braves, uh, seemingly with no hope of even contending for a third straight trip to the playoffs. Uh, so the franchise seemed poised for some kind of sell-off from major to minor. Uh, rather than a full rebuild, though, Steve Phillips, uh, then general manager, looked for uh, lower ceiling but MLB-ready players to acquire. Uh, the sell-off began uh, when the Mets traded beloved relief pitchers Turk Wendell and Dennis Cook to the Phillies for Bruce Chen, and uh, there were rumors that the team would even perhaps part with Al Leiter, but uh, I remember those being pretty prominent in the papers and a lot of speculation, but Phillips pivoted and wound up trading Rick Reed, who, God, I loved, and I, is probably too good of a player for an unformidable podcast, but, you know, if you guys want to vote on that or uh, encourage that, I would not object to that, because what a story. I mean, basically an angrier, slightly less introspective R.A. Dickey without the quirky knuckleball, or quite the Cy Young season, but uh, but Reed was a, a story of his own, and great pitcher for the Mets for a while, but he was 36 and had just signed a four-year contract the previous offseason, so, you know, who wouldn't be the Mets uh, or the, the Wilpon Mets if there wasn't some financial considerations as the team chose to jettison Reed, and again, rather than going full rebuild, uh, brought in the 29-year-old Matt Lawton, who still had a year of arbitration eligibility left. Um, so the team obviously was eyeing 2002. Uh, Phillips said that he hoped Matt would be, quote, the start to a process. Uh, he had been having a great season uh, as at the time of the trade, hitting 293 with 10 homers, 51 RBIs, and 19 stolen bases, and a 396 on base percentage at the time of the trade, which, you know, might not be gaudy, but seemed gaudy when you realized he'd be joining an outfield primarily staffed uh, to that point of the season by Joe McEwing, Yoshi Shinjo, and 
a declining or struggling Jay Payton and Benny Agbayani. So all of a sudden, Matt Lawton in the outfield looked pretty exciting, even though at the price of uh, a beloved starter in Rick Reed. Uh, but you know, it seemed to be clear that it was more about the following year. Uh, the New York Times described the Mets' deadline moves as you know, the defending NL champion Mets have the worst offense in the majors. They trail Atlanta by 11 and a half games and are eighth in the wild card race and have begun preparing for next season. Chen will replace Reed in the Mets' rotation. Of course, while the Mets would indeed fall short of that third straight postseason appearance, team actually wasn't quite done with the 2001 season, and while the Wilpons meaningful games mantra was often justifiably mocked, uh, the Mets did indeed play meaningful games down the stretch of the 2001 season, both in baseball terms and particularly in emotional terms, as has been well documented. And truth be told, Matt Lawton didn't have a ton of memorable moments with the Mets, but he was certainly along for the ride on a memorable stretch in team history and a part of a couple of notable trades in team history. Uh, Matt made his debut in a Met uniform, non-bat-boy you know, non, uh, uniform, on September, on uh, September, on uh, July 31st, uh, 2001 in Houston, singled in his first at bat against old friend, old Met friend, and I believe former unformidable subject, Dave Malicki, uh, in a game the Mets would lose 3-2 to the Astros in 10 innings. Uh, he'd hit his first Met homer mere days later in Arizona off of soon-to-be World Series co-MVP and Already an asshole, I presume, Kurt Schilling, in a 2-1 loss as well. Uh, But Lawton would really struggle to fit in with his new team, and the team would continue to struggle. Uh, At one point, losing eight in a row in mid-August, falling to a low point of 55 and 68. 13 and a half games behind the Braves in, like, around August 18th or so. Then... Uh, the, out of seemingly out of nowhere, the team reeled off a 17 and five stretch through to September 9th, uh, which gave them a more respectable uh, 71 and 73 record. But they were still eight and a half games out <clears throat> in early September. Uh, still no real sense of a penetrace or meaningful baseball games. Uh, but then, of course, baseball was interrupted and rendered quite meaningless in its own right in ways that are well beyond the scope of this silly little podcast to really get into. But when baseball returned, the Mets kept winning. Uh, First three in a row in Pittsburgh, three games that were supposed to be at Shea, but were moved because Shea was involved in the relief efforts post 9-11. And then, of course, baseball made its return to New York at that incredibly memorable 9-21-01 game. Newly acquired Bruce Chen started the game, and newly acquired Matt Lawton was actually the first Met batter to come to the plate in that game, uh, flying out to left off of New York native Jason Marquis. I mean, uh, nice nice New York story, right? Because newcomers are always such a part of New York and its story. But um, at any rate, I sat in the upper deck. Uh, at Shea for that game, and I have 
zero recollection of Matt Lawton leading off the game. I assume he got a pretty good ovation as the first Met batter in an emotional game. Uh, I have no recollection of the fact that Matt Lawton led off the fateful bottom of the eighth inning against Steve Carsey, grounding out to short uh, when only two two at-bats before Mike Piazza would hit one of the most memorable home runs in baseball history. Um, so, you know, a couple of different plays from Matt Lawton in that game, and we might remember him much more prominently as a Met. Um, of course, after that magical game, the Mets were suddenly three and a half games behind the slumping Braves and had uh, five, four more games, five more games left with the Braves, sorry, four and a half, I think, because uh, they won the next night as well to go to three and a half behind the game, behind the Braves, and they still had four games remaining with Atlanta. So a couple of different ninth innings from Armando Benitez and John Franco against the Braves, and the 2001 season itself might have been remembered as miraculously. Uh, but unfortunately, the Mets 16-5 and five September would eventually fall a bit short. Most prominently in that third game of that series, when the Mets had a 5-2 lead in the ninth, that Armando Benitez blew, that, would, that kept the Mets from cutting the deficit to two and a half games, and it was it was amazing. So short after 9/11 to care so much about a baseball game, I didn't think it would be possible, and um, it did seem normal, and uh, I guess normal that the Mets did eventually break my heart, but. Uh, you know, it, it, there, there just were moments where it felt like it was meant to be. I mean, sure, that was actually a bad team that was closer to the early season team than that late season run as their 73-89 uh, and 89 Pythagorean record for 2001 would indicate the team scored 642 runs and allowed 713. Um, but, you know, it did start to feel magical. And uh, if any New York team should give us something magical and miraculous by rights, it should be the Mets, shouldn't it? But alas for the Mets, the 2001 season did end with the regular season. Uh, And the Mets were looking to Lawton, even though he struggled, as someone who would fill an important role and bolster the team's offense in 2002. But, uh, and you know, again, it could have been a great story. The former Bat Boy who grew up rooting for the Mets... But when the opportunity arose to acquire a future Hall of Fame infielder from the selling Cleveland organization, and Cleveland wanted Lawton as a piece in the deal, it was obviously too good to be true. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, the end of the end of two thousand one was tough for all all of us New Yorkers, but. I, I remember exulting with something akin to pure joy maybe three times in the latter portion of that year, all baseball-related. Mike Piazza's home run, watching the Yankees lose the World Series on a walk-off, and a little bit later, hearing on the radio that the Mets had traded for Roberto Alomar. I mean, he had finished fourth in the MVP voting in 2001 in the AL with a 7.7 B war. Uh, you Obviously, we don't have time to get into the details of Alomar's ill-fated year in New York. It's been well-documented and quite a source of frustration. But um, an interesting side note, for me at least, when I was researching this pod, uh, 
obviously this trade is remembered incredibly poorly by Mets fans, uh, focusing on Alomar's collapse. However, it's also seen as a bit of a lost opportunity in Cleveland, uh, where the team was also trying to follow a very Metsian model. Never a good idea, organizations. But uh, they were also trying to thread a needle of selling off players while staying competitive and not full-scale rebuilding. Uh, Mark Shapiro, who was then a new GM for Cleveland, and of course is now a notable exec with Toronto, actually cited the Alomar trade in 2016 as one of the worst trades he's ever made. Which, you know, sounded pretty unbelievable to me, because all I know is that Met side of it, and I was like, but he he completely fell apart for us. He dodged a bullet. But, um, yeah, the full trade was Roberto Alomar, Mike Basick, and Danny Peoples to the Mets for Matt Lawton, Alex Escobar, Billy Traber, Gerard Riggin, and Earl Snyder. Uh, and four years after the trade, none of those five players were still in the Indians organization. And if you take away Lawton's 3.8 war that he recorded with Cleveland, uh, the other four players combined for 0.5 war as Indians, you know, barely making any dent whatsoever, again, for trading an MVP caliber player. Uh, to quote Shapiro, uh, we traded Roberto for, uh, you know, listing the trade. Uh, that was a trade firmly in the middle. Uh, we recognized that we needed to rebuild with the addition of prospects, but we were also looking to remain competitive with acquiring Lawton. Had we been more firmly committed in one direction, either contending or rebuilding, we would have made a trade that netted a better return. We learned from that experience and adjusted to make better trades with Bartolo Colon and those that followed. Um, so, you know, just for fun, or very not fun, uh, if you're a Met fan, very, you know, rarely as a Met fan do I say, oh, it could have been worse. But um, at the time, you know, I looked at the at the time of the trade. Uh, Alex Escobar was the Mets' number two rated prospect, and Billy Traber was their number five rated prospect. Uh, but they were the highest rated prospects close to the majors and the top ten. Similarly rated on that list uh, were Jose Reyes at number three of Baseball America's top prospects, and one David Wright as the Mets' number seven rated prospect. But Escobar and Traber were much closer to the doorstep. Uh, Reyes and Wright were still very green. So uh, the, the Indians, again, went for the veteran and the, you know, not, not to say Wright and Reyes were specifically mentioned, but, uh, you know, if, if one of them had been involved, well, you know, this probably would be the trade we'd be mentioning more than any other when the name Jared Kalenic comes up. As for Matt Lawton, he he signed a contract extension, a four-year extension with Cleveland, giving up that last year of arbitration, and settled in as a solid everyday player worth one to two war a year. His average dipped into the 230 to 240 range, but he maintained on-base percentages in that 340 range consistent, and continued putting up double-digit homer and stolen base numbers. And as I discussed the homer stolen base numbers, I I probably had him in a couple of fantasy leagues, which might be one reason I appreciated Matt Lawton so much when I think about it. But at any rate, he did spend his last two years in baseball in 05 and 06, bouncing between four teams, uh, 
the Pirates, Cubs, Yankees, and Mariners. Um, he struggled really those last two years with a lot of injuries, a lack of playing time, and then the unfortunate uh, incident of a PED suspension. Uh, at the end of the 2005 season with the Yankees, he failed a steroid test and he was suspended for the first 10 games of the 2006 season. Uh, he was the 12th player suspended under baseball's uh, relatively new PED policy. Although to his credit, he was one of the few in my memory to uh, simply apologize and not make any excuses. His statement simply being, I made a terrible and foolish mistake that I will regret for the rest of my life. I take full responsibility for my actions and do not appeal my suspension, going on to apologize, you know, to the fans, to his family, etc. Lawton did play minimally for the for the Mariners in 2006, but that wound up being his last season in the majors. He retired after the 2006 season. Uh, for his career, he put up a 15.1 war, according to baseball reference. Uh, he hit 138 homers and stole 165 bases. Again, love those double-digit homer stolen base guys in fantasy. But uh, yeah, more importantly, in real in real baseball, uh, he hit 267 with a 368 on-base percentage and a 417 slugging percentage, uh, 785 OPS and 105 OPS plus. And he did so rare in this day and age of baseball actually record more walks than strikeouts in his career walking 681 times and striking out 613 times. For the Mets, Slotin appeared in a mere 48 games, uh, 213 plate appearances, he hit three homers, drove in 13 runs, stole 10 bases, and slashed 246, 352, 366. Uh, so it was a really underwhelming uh, short stint with the Mets for Matt Lawton, which really more than anything leaves his Mets legacy is those two trades, I think. And again, I'm not trying to make any connection between this trade and Mr. Lindor's acquisition. Let's hope the takeaway is that the Mets should never engage in trades for aging middle infielders like Roberto Alomar or Robinson Cano. But, you know, I usually like to try and finish these with a little bit of a where are they now, but perhaps appropriately for this quiet very professional ball player uh, who is noted as a quiet country lad. Uh, Matt Lawton has been very quiet in retirement. He's returned home to Mississippi and lives in uh, the town where he was born, Gulfport, uh, last report. Uh, he lives with his wife and a son and daughter. Uh, the interviews I've seen with him since his career ended have mostly just been memories of his playing days where he cited the All-Star game and things like that. But uh, not much information about his current activities other than just as a retired ball player. But for a brief time, but an unforgettable time in New York City, and a pretty briefly exciting, fleetingly exciting time in Mets baseball, Matt Lawton was unformidable. Thank you all for listening to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. Uh, follow Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and the Gram. Uh, you can find this on all of our Amazing Pods wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, and the show is at Unformidable. Thank you, and let's go Mets.